This evening, our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10. We'll be reading from verses 25 through 37. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1196. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, which we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God. <clears throat> this evening, we'll be reading from Lord's Day 2, and in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 202. So we read first from the Word of God tonight from Luke 10, verse 25 through 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Lord's Day 2, which includes three questions. Question number three, how do you come to know your misery, is answered by the law of God tells me. Question four asks, what does God's law require of us? And the answer, Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest in the first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? And the answer, no. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. <clears throat> A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you well know, and I, I readily acknowledge, I am not a doctor, nor do I have any advanced medical training. Uh, and so it's always dangerous, you might say, to pick an illustration from the medical field. Uh, but I believe the illustration that I've chosen for introduction is one that is fair and one that is relatable. Uh, in the identification of a cure, it's most important to rightly identify the disease. Boys and girls, many of you know what it is to get a common cold, to catch a common cold. 
a case of the, the sniffles, the sneezes. And you know that yeah, your mom might say, well, here's some cough medicine. Drink plenty of fluids and get proper rest. Now, sadly, some of us are also acquainted with cancer. And we know that cancer is a different disease than the common cold. And so with cancer, often there is uh, the steps of chemotherapy and of radiation, maybe even of a dramatic surgery. And my only point in illustration is this, that the right identification of the disease brings about two radically different remedies. I mean, imagine, boys and girls, if you went to your mom and said, I think I'm getting a cold. And she called the doctor and said, can we schedule radiation treatments and chemotherapy and surgery for my son or my daughter? He or she has a cold. You'd probably become quite afraid, scared. You'd probably never tell your mom again if you had a cold. You'd never sniffle again. And by contrast, I suppose that a malpractice lawsuit could be brought against the surgeon who diagnosed you with cancer and said, go home and take some NyQuil and sleep it off, and everything will be better in a couple of days. Now, what's the point of this illustration? We need to correctly identify what is wrong with us so that we can then also rightly identify the remedy or the cure for what is wrong with us. And no matter what also politicians say, nearly everybody in the human race will acknowledge that there is something wrong, something wrong with the human race. Uh, Even in the 1980s, uh, among the rock music industry, there was the acknowledgement by the band Aerosmith, there's something wrong with the world today. Now, I don't bring that illustration up to advocate for that band or that genre of music has just chosen as an example that even those far from a biblical worldview acknowledge that there's something wrong with the world today. Of course, they went on and they had to acknowledge that they did not know what it is. But the Word of God does know what is wrong with the world. The Word of God with its infinite perfections comes and it rightly identifies the very cause of our miserable state and condition. Having preached through the Heidelberg Catechism numerous times, I have to also tell you that the first three Lord's Days are very, very difficult. It's similar to sitting in a doctor's office and having the doctor say, The results are in. It's cancer. And it's a severe form of cancer. And then the treatment plan is laid out in the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism. But to get to the second section, we have to thoroughly go through the first section. And although it's only three Lord's Days, it can seem to be three agonizing steps as we consider in gradually descending degrees the miserable condition and state of natural man. 
Now, maybe some of you memorize the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism as being sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, and gratitude, and those are helpful. I don't want to demean those simplistic terms, but sin and misery are not synonymous. Now, they go together, but misery is a broader concept. So, sin is included in misery, but misery is even a broader concept. And so, you'll notice that part one, as we have it in our translation, is entitled misery, and the question that begins this section is, how do you come to know your misery? Notice that the existence of this misery is presupposed. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism don't begin with a clear identification of what exactly our misery is. They just simply say, how do you come to know your misery? Well, that demands that we consider at least briefly what this word misery means. And in the original uh, language of the catechism, in the German in which it was originally composed in, misery was a word that was a contrast to comfort. Remember, our catechism is the book of comfort. What is your only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own? Misery is the exact opposite of comfort. Comfort had this idea of confidence. Misery has the idea of being forsaken, of being alienated. And boys again, girls, again, to try to help you, the best way I can think of misery is this. If comfort, if confidence, I mean, imagine right now, it's, it's getting dark out. Imagine right now you're out in a field, or maybe you're out in a, a woodlot, and no one's around. You don't have any light. You hear all the night sounds, all of those lurking monsters that sometimes live in your imagination out in those woods, and you become incredibly scared. Because you're all alone, alienated. That's the concept of misery. Comfort, comfort is in your living room, surrounded by family. The lights are on, the heat is on, the evening meal uh, is in the kitchen, and everything is well and good. So misery... We need to know our misery so that we'll be brought to seek comfort. So I want to begin this step forward into the concept of our misery by looking at this theme tonight briefly, the revelation of my misery. First of all, the source of the revelation, then secondly, the results in the revelation, and then thirdly, the purpose of the revelation the source of the revelation of my misery is a divine source and is a legal source. Very simply put, it is God Himself who reveals to us our miserable condition. Humanity knows inherently that there is something wrong with the world today, including ourselves, but humanity can never rightly identify the cause of our misery. And never being able to rightly identify the cause of our misery, humanity in and of itself, in whatever form it may take, whether it be in a political structure or whether it be in a humanistic movement, can never rightly identify the remedy for man's misery. Think of the thousands of years. Think of the different worldviews that have been advanced. 
Think of how many politicians have stumped promising that they had the remedy to all that ailed mankind. And are we really any better off today than we were thousands of years ago? No, it's only a divine source that can reveal to us the true cause, the true depths, the true extent of our misery. And that's because man, humanity, is so infected by his misery that he cannot rightly identify the cause of his misery. Basically, you could say mankind in and of themselves were too proud to admit the ultimate cause of our misery. It's like the stubborn man who is lost as he drives his car, but he's too proud to admit to his wife that he's lost. And so he just keeps on driving, saying, no, I know exactly where I'm going, and I know exactly how to get where we need to go. And sadly, many a person, maybe even who hears these words tonight, is in such a situation, spiritually speaking, too proud and too stubborn to admit that their life is a life of misery. And so they just keep on driving forward, pursuing this escape, pursuing that avenue of distraction, saying to themselves all along and surrounding themselves perhaps with people who echo The sentiments, everything is okay. Everything is fine. Just keep on driving. Over the next hill, over the next horizon, there will be joy and happiness and bliss forevermore. But one disappointment simply gives way to another disappointment. And that's because, sadly, humanity will not listen to the divine source as the divine source speaks in the Word of God. So we are encouraged and we are reminded of the importance of listening to the Word of God, also in the identity of our misery. And God speaks, and He speaks through His Word, but especially in His law. And what is the law of God? It's very simple, but it's so confused in our day. The law of God, as it is expressed, is this, love. Love is the essence of the law. Love towards God, love towards one's fellow man. And it is this command, this twofold command, that when properly understood, reveals to us the reality of our misery. You can think of Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21. There Isaiah complains, or really the Lord through Isaiah complains, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. You see, the danger is that we fall prey to subjective evaluations of our own morality. What do I mean by that, subjective evaluations of our own morality? Well, I can think that I am the most loving person if I compare myself to someone who I believe is less loving than I am. Just like I can convince myself that I am a very spiritual person if I compare myself to someone who is unspiritual in my own estimation. Just like the man who presented this question uh, to our Lord and Savior, uh, a certain lawyer who stood up and tested him, noticed that his question was not one out of serious inquiry. But he tested our Lord and Savior, and sadly, he failed the test. But test our Lord he did. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? No doubt this man thought that he had already done much to inherit eternal life, because he was a certain lawyer a teacher of the law, 
but he misunderstood the law because he, he evaluated himself subjectively in comparison to others. Just like I can convince myself in my own mind that I am quite the shooter on the basketball court until I actually take a shot on the basketball court. Then I am confronted with the reality of an objective standard when the ball does not go through the hoop. And so for a moment tonight, stand before the objective bar of God's law. You, I, are required to love God perfectly. Have you done that? Are you able to do that? You, I, are required according to the objective standard of the law of God to love our neighbor perfectly. And very quickly comes the question, well, who is my neighbor? Every person that the Lord puts in your path Are you able to love them perfectly? The answer is no. And yet the law says, do this and you will live. Implying if you don't do it, you will die. And that, my friend, is our miserable condition. The law says, love perfectly and you will live. But we're not able to do that. Well, what then are we to say? We have to move on to our second point, the results in the revelation. The results is that not only do I have this requirement to love God and my neighbor perfectly, but I'm also unable to do that. So just to review again, the law comes and says, have a perfect love for God perfectly, continually, properly reverence Him as the only object of our desire, as the only object of our affections. Now think a moment about your days. How often is your will not fixed upon what you want? And how often does what you want come into consideration before what God wants? And yet this is the first and the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. But our misery is is that we're turned in on ourselves, And if we listen to ourselves speak in our own minds, and if we listen to other persons speak within our culture, you can hear this constant refrain of me, 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 I, I, I. Our misery is that we have been created to worship God, but by our sinful depravity, we worship ourselves. God is the highest object to be praised, and yet so often don't we find ourselves wanting to praise ourselves? Like the little spoiled kid in the background jumping up and down saying, what about me? What about me? What about me? Where's my five minutes of fame? Don't forget about me. That's often the way we live our lives. And it shows up in all sorts of context, all sorts of relational conflicts in the home, in the workplace, and sadly, yes, also in the church. But what about me? 
What about my wants? What about my will? What about my desire? What about my ideas? What about my opinions? But God is first and foremost. What about Him? Now you can say to yourself, okay, yeah, I'm going to focus my mind on what God wants. And then 10 seconds later, you find yourself right back where you began, focused upon what you want. And that's our misery. And then our neighbor, we might say, okay, a new week, a new resolution. I'm going to go and I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love my coworkers. I'm going to love my neighbors. I'm going to give of myself uh, in a selfless, sacrificial way. Uh, I'm going to be that good Samaritan. And, and so we think, and we maybe begin the list with, with the people that we are fond of. We say, well, my spouse. I'm, I'm fond of my spouse. I'm going to love him. I'm going to love her this week. Eh, we'll leave that one aside. Maybe you do well with that one. And you think, well, my children. I'm going to love them selfishly and sacrificially. Well, we'll grant you that also. But now your coworkers. Now, it's been a while since I've been in the so-called ordinary vocations of life, but I can remember those days, and you had co-workers that you could tolerate, and then you had the other ones. And now here's where the test really gets real. Now you resolve in your mind tonight that you are going to be loving to your co-workers, and you may do okay at a superficial level, with those co-workers who don't get under your skin, but what about that one co-worker who always pushes all of your buttons? Are you able to love him or her without bitterness rising up in your heart? Without anger? I'm not asking do you, I'm asking are you even able to? And if you're honest, and maybe many of you have a person in your mind, if you're honest, you have to say, I can't do it. I'm not able to do it. That's because of our inability. And our inability reveals our spiritual brokenness. What we theologically call depravity. Uh, we speak, boys and girls, of a human being of you and of me being made up of a body, our arms, our legs, our internal organs, our, our brain, but also of a soul or a heart. And now, yes, we have the physical heart that pumps and pushes blood all throughout our physical body, but then there is the spiritual part of our person. Now, the, the doctor, he can't take that soul out. He can't put it underneath an MRI machine and say, okay, here's your soul, here's how it looks. But it's real, and you have one and I have one. But apart from God's healing of that soul, that soul is sick unto death. Now, I know this isn't nice for us to hear, but it's the truth. Last week, Sunday morning, we looked at Ephesians 2. And you who were dead in sins and in trespasses. That's our spiritual condition by nature apart from God's redeeming grace. 
That's our misery. Created and commanded to love, but prone to hate. And think of all of the ills in the society of humanity. And they can be traced back to that. Created to love, prone to hate. You can think of the global conflicts. And I'm no expert in international policies, but you can think of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. What's wrong there? Prone to hate my neighbor and prone to hate my God. You can think of the horrific evil of abortion in our own land and what's wrong? Prone to hate even the offspring of one's own body and prone to hate the God who gives life. And any other social ill that can be identified by any expert can be traced back to this root cause of man's misery. Created to love, but prone to hate. And this fact and this reality that we cannot love God perfectly nor our neighbor perfectly reveals our misery. But to what purpose is all of this? And maybe you ask yourself that this evening. Maybe you're a member here in attendance and you think, well, this is a fine way to spend a Sunday evening, coming and hearing a man give a monologue for approximately 20 minutes so far, telling us how miserable we are. What a way to begin a week. Maybe you listen in by the radio and you think, I should find another channel or a station, I suppose, on the radio. I would ask you to be patient for a few more moments because there is a purpose. I mean, I suppose you could say the same thing to the doctor who looks at the test results and says, it's cancer. You might say, well, why in the world did you call me in to give me that depressing news? Well, the purpose is because there is a cure. But the cure begins with an honest recognition of the miserable status. I suppose some person who had some psychological defect would submit themselves if they were perfectly whole in hell, uh, well, to a surgical procedure. But I think one of the biggest motivating factors for a person to submit themselves to a radical surgical procedure is when the doctor says, if we don't operate, you're going to die. Then the surgeon can explain all sorts of what otherwise would be considered barbaric procedures, and you will say, yes, when is the earliest that I can get in? And that's the purpose of identifying our misery, so that we might make appeal to the remedy. But the purpose has to be, and you'll notice in the outline, I have this word, experiential knowledge. We have to have an experiential knowledge that I am prone by nature to hate God and to hate my neighbor. This is what it means to have an experiential knowledge, not just that humanity is prone to hate God and to hate their neighbor. 
Now that also is true, but beloved hearers, that will not profit you anything. You can have a perfect knowledge of how sinful this world is. That will not help your soul. You can have a perfect knowledge of how corrupt politicians are. That will not benefit your soul. You can even have a thorough knowledge of how apostate other churches are. That will not help your soul. You can even have a list of all of the sins of your fellow church members. And that, my friend, will profit you nothing. The catechism throughout is personal. I am prone to hate God and to hate my neighbor. There's that wonderfully true and powerful statement in the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. In the preparatory section of the first form, the old form, the traditional form, I don't say that in any way to slight the newer second form, but the exhortation, the pastoral exhortation is this, let each one by himself consider his own accursedness. And it is to be feared that in conservative churches, more time is spent considering the misery of the world, of the other churches, and perhaps even of the other members in one's own church, and considering one's own personal misery. Imagine how transformative it would be if the eyes, figuratively speaking, that scan around taking note of faults and shortcomings in others would simply drop down and look approximately 18 inches below one's own brain and see one's own heart and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is necessary knowledge. Necessary experiential knowledge. The Apostle Paul did not say that the Ephesians or the Corinthians or the Romans were the chief of sinners. He did not say that the Pharisees or the publicans or the tax collectors were the chief of sinners. He did not say that Judas Iscariot was the chief of sinners. He did not say that the impenitent thief upon the cross who died railing out threats upon Jesus Christ was the chief of sinners. He said that he himself was the chief of sinners. And I ask you tonight, do you know yourself as the chief of sinners? To say, God, I am the man. I am the woman. By nature, I am the one who hates, who hates you, God, and who hates my fellow man. Because it's only when there's that knowledge that there will be the necessary cry of a miserable sinner. Romans 7, verse 24 is the Apostle Paul' statement, O wretched man that I am. 
Now elsewhere, he, he says that he is the chief of sinners, but of course there is a parallelism between the statement that he is the chief of sinners and then this cry, O wretched man that I am. And if you know something about Romans 7, you know that this comes after Paul identifies this internal spiritual warfare that he has ongoing within him. The good that he would, he doesn't do. And that which he would not do, he finds himself doing. You might say he wrestles with the reality that he's unable to keep the law of God perfectly. And it's out of the recognition of that reality that he cries, wretched man that I am. Notice that the knowledge, the experiential knowledge of his misery leads him to cry. But he doesn't just stop there. He asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And again, I would ask, have you ever cried out that question personally, experientially, and not just one time initially underneath some mystical impression? We're not talking about that, but continually. Because these three things that we must know are not graduated steps. You know that you get through the sin and misery, then you never experience that again. And you move on to the second plateau of spiritual life, the knowledge of deliverance. And then after you spend a number of years there, uh, you reach the pinnacle of experiential knowledge uh, of gratitude. No, all three of these go together continuously in the life of the child of God. Paul is a seasoned saint when he writes Romans 7. He's a seasoned saint when he writes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But it's when a person comes to acknowledge that reality that then also the answer, I thank God through my Savior, Jesus Christ. So this knowledge is vitally necessary of our own misery so that our eyes might be drawn away from ourselves and away from any type of external moralism, legalism, self-help theology, therapeutic type of sentimentality, and drawn to the simple work of the simple Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we have looked into deep, mysterious truths about our own spiritual condition, things that perhaps are not easy to speak of nor to hear, but we do believe that what we have said is in accordance with the revelation of Your Word. If we have misspoken or misrepresented your truth, we pray that it would be carried far from the ears of the hearers. But if we have spoken that which is in accordance with your word, we pray, Father, that the Spirit would bury these truths deep into our hearts, leading us to humbly acknowledge that we are, we are the ones who by nature are prone to hate God and to hate our neighbor. But may they not fill us with despair, but may that lead us to cry out, who will deliver us? And may we quickly come to echo the answer 
that we thank our God for the person and the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.